And so tonight we're in Genesis chapter 43. Um, we've got some ground to cover tonight. Uh, our format for our study might seem a little bit different the way we go about it because we're going to go through a rather large portion of scripture kind of all at once um, and and uh, and and I know there's a, an inherent danger in that because sometimes when you go through too much scripture too quickly people go to sleep and I know you don't want to go to sleep and that uh, you, you know that's not your intention otherwise you wouldn't be here um, but it can happen but I don't think it's going to happen tonight and the reason I don't think it's going to happen is because this really is the the climax of the story that we've been building up towards uh, in these weeks following the life of Joseph. And so this is an amazing uh, portion of Scripture, probably one of the most emotionally uh, pregnant passages in all the Bible, um, and, and it's before us tonight. So bear with the, the, the format, and I'm hoping um, to finish a little bit earlier tonight, uh, just to respect your time and... and, and um, not making any promises, but let's just pray <laughs> because with God, all things are possible. So let's ask him to bless our study. Father, we thank you tonight for, again, giving us your word. And it's to you that we look now, Lord. Uh, it's not me, the speaker, and, and everybody else that hears, but it's us, your people, Lord. You call us the sheep of your pasture. And, and Lord, I need to hear from you as much as, as the rest. And I pray tonight that your Holy Spirit would um, become so... Uh, tangibly evident in this place, that we would sense your presence here. Lord, we ask that we hear your voice and, and that you'd speak to us in a deeper place than where speech can reach and, um, and, and where any emotional thing can touch. Lord, I pray that you would go to the deepest place and that you'd impact us there by the truth of your word. And so we're trusting you, Lord, and we're asking you, Father, to, uh, to bless and anoint the, the truth and, and what we have before us here. And we're asking you uh, to do these things in the name of your son, whom you've given for this very cause and reason. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, where we're at in our study, just because we're kind of jumping in, we're going to jump in right in verse 8 of chapter 43. Uh, Jacob and his family are all a mess. Everything at this point, uh, there, are, there are things that need to be set right on every level. And God desires for his people always to set things right. And so where we come into this story tonight, we have uh, God with his people um, stationed in Canaan, but he needs to move them to Egypt because that's a part of his plan for the upcoming season of their development as a people and what he wants to do with them. And so they're out of joint in terms of where they're supposed to be uh, in a collective sense, congregationally or as a community. We see that Joseph who's kind of the main character of this segment of the book of Genesis, Joseph is carrying a, a, an unresolved past. He was sold as a slave by his brothers. He has become the prime minister in Egypt, all a part of God's design to bring the people back down there. But he has all kinds of unresolved issues in his life that he is handling quite well. But, the, but nevertheless, there are a lot of answers that he needs to get, a lot of resolution that has to happen in his heart, and God is going to come through, and he's going to do that. We also, in the passage, we see Joseph's brothers, the, the, the ten brothers that sold him as a slave, which is the reason he's in Egypt, and then the one brother, his one uh, uh, full brother, blood brother, uh, Benjamin, who's the youngest, who really has no clue 
anything of what's going on in the whole thing. But we see that these guys are carrying also this entire uh, um, narration of events that have happened in their life that's also unresolved. They've been living in a lie. They, they told their father that Joseph was dead, knowing full well that they sold him as a slave. And they've been living in this. And we saw last week the pressure of the guilt that they're carrying because of this uh, crime that they've committed and, and this thing that they were trying to do uh, in, in their lives. And so they're carrying this thing and it's just getting worse day by day, but God is going to resolve it. And then we see Jacob, of course, the father in all this, who's just living in a train wreck and wondering what in the world and why am I sitting on a pile of ruin that is my life? And if I am blessed by God and I belong to God, then why does it seem like things are so incredibly bad as it goes for me? And at the, the, the end of our, our passage last week, Jacob looking at all of the things that are just going wrong, everything in his life going wrong, it boils over and it comes out of his mouth in a statement where he says that all these things are against me. And, and it just everywhere he looks, it's just problems and trouble because Joseph has asked that Benjamin be brought down to Egypt and Jacob is afraid. Benjamin is the last light that Jacob has, the last bit of pleasure, the last bit of anything glorious or good that he can hold on to that he looks at and that maybe he can get half of a smile out of it. And he fears that if he lets Benjamin go down to Egypt, that he'll never see Benjamin again and that his entire life will just be wasted away in nothing but sorrow and desolation. And so he's in this terrible place now where he's living in a famine and he has no food. And the only way that he can get food is if he lets go of Benjamin and he doesn't want to do it. And so he kind of freezes And he says, nothing is changing. I'm not letting go of Benjamin. He's not going down there. And we're going to wait this thing out and hope that the famine ends. And I don't have to send Benjamin down there. And we'll worry about Simeon later. I really don't care too much about him who's stuck in a prison down in Egypt. But it's there that we kind of pick up the narration in verse 8. And so let's look at these verses and really the resolution of the matter. It tells us in verse 8 that Judah... Now said to Israel, his father, send the lad that is Benjamin with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die both we and you and also our little ones. In other words, dad, it's come to the point now where this is a life and death issue. And if you don't let Benjamin go, then everybody dies, not just Benjamin. And Judah says, I will be a surety for him or I will be a guarantee. I'll put my life in his place. Of my hand you will require him if I don't bring him to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For except we had lingered, surely now we would have returned the second time. If you had let Benjamin go with us before, we'd already be back here with more food. And their father Israel said unto them, If it must be so now, then do this. Take of the best fruits in the land in your vessels and carry down the man, that is Joseph, a present a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds, and take double money in your hand and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks. Carry it again in your hand. Perhaps it was an oversight. And take also your brother and arise and go unto the man. And so Jacob releases the thing that he was holding on to, and he allows them now to take Benjamin in Judah's custody under his responsibility down to Joseph. 
And God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may send away your older brother, Simeon, and Benjamin. And here's Jacob's glory moment. This is what it all boils down to for him. He says, and if I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. I release, I let go of this thing that I've been holding on to, this thing that has been my security, this thing that has been my status quo, my go-to, my comfort, the only hope that I have left, I am releasing it, and if I am bereaved, then I'm bereaved. If the outcome is as bad as I'm thinking that it's going to be, then the outcome is as bad as I think it's going to be, but I'm letting go of the thing that I was holding on to. And so the men took that present, and they took double money in their hand and Benjamin, And they rose up and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the ruler of his house, Bring these men home and slay and make ready, for these men shall dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph bade, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money that was returned in our sacks at the first time that we, that we are brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us as slaves and take our donkeys. The wealth of Egypt and they're interested in your donkeys. So these guys are detained by the TSA. As they're coming through the metal detectors, everybody else is just bleeping right through. Bloop, no problem, no problem. These guys go through and security says, hey, you guys come with me. And they're brought immediately, not into the principal's office, but into the prime minister's house. And immediately the guilt of their past begins to stir up within them again. And they say, oh boy, this is real bad. Something was wrong with our tax returns. We didn't file the right way, and now we're, be- we're being detained. This is because we got more money back on the-, on the tax return than what was owed to us. It wasn't our fault. We crossed the T's and dotted the I's, but now we're in trouble, and they- they're going to take our motorcycles too. We're in big trouble here. And so it says that they came near to the steward of Joseph's house, and they communed with him at the door of the house. And they said, Oh, sir. We indeed came down the first time to buy food, and it came to pass that when we came to the inn that we opened our sacks, and behold, every man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, and we have brought it again in our hand. And other money have we brought down in our hands to buy food. We cannot tell who put our money in our sacks. We have the proof here in the audit to relieve ourselves of this charge. And he said, peace be to you, fear not, your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And he brought Simeon out unto them. And the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet. And he gave their donkeys provender. So not taking their donkeys, but rather feeding their donkeys. And they made ready the present against Joseph come at noon For they heard that they should eat bread there. So they prepared the the spices, the honey, and all that that Jacob sent with them. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house, and they bowed themselves to him to the earth. And he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spake? Is he yet alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is yet alive, and they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. This is the third time now they bow down in fulfillment of Joseph's dream. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw his brother Benjamin, 
his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spake unto me? And he said, God be gracious unto you, my son. And Joseph made haste for his bowels. you got to forgive the King James here. There's a reason for it. But he says, For his bowels did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep. And he entered into his chamber and wept there. I just challenge you to use that language next time you want to express emotion that you felt towards a person. I saw a great movie and my bowels did yearn within me and I needed to reach for the tissue box, you know, and the whole idea. But you get the point, you know. And another time I'll tell you why I cling to the King James and it's not a religious reason, it's practical. But he needed to weep. He was overwhelmed when he saw Benjamin. And it says that he washed his face and he went out and he refrained himself. He controls himself and he said, set on the bread. And so they set on for him by himself. So he sat at his own table. And for them by themselves, they sat at their own table. And then for the Egyptians, which did eat with him by themselves. So three tables, three people separated. I believe Joseph seeking to communicate something to his brother's through this, something subtle. And it tells us why. It says, because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination unto the Egyptians. And so they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men marveled one at another. So Joseph seats them and he arranges them by order of age from oldest to youngest. And now remember that all of these men are on in years now to the point where you cannot distinguish just by looking which is the oldest and which is the youngest. And we, we know that because even the men said, how, did, how in the world did he know how to seat us? Now, if you statistically work out the um, probability of Joseph guessing this and getting it right, it's like one in 490 million. Some sick number like that, if you take all the probabilities, you multiply one eleventh times one tenth times one ninth times one eighth times one seventh. You just keep building that and you go, oh my goodness. And even these guys realize the probability of him getting this right is very, very small. And so he took and he, and now I know someone here just grabbed their smartphone. Do it later. You know, check that later, you know. But it says, that it says that he took and he sent messes unto them from before him, food. But Benjamin's mess was five times so much as any of theirs. And they drank and they were merry with him. And so he serves all of the brothers food, but he gives Benjamin five times the amount of food that he gave to everyone else, his blood brother. Now, what Joseph is doing here is that he is setting them up for the final test. He wants to know if these guys are changed, reformed, repentant, if they're sorry, if there's any remorse for the things that he, they had done unto him. And so he's setting them up now and he's going to give them a golden opportunity to get rid of Benjamin if they want to, the same way that they got rid of him. And so they he seeks to create resentment in the heart of the older ten against the youngest, Benjamin, by giving him five times more food. Now watch what happens. And it says that he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put every man's money in his sack's mouth. And then put my cup, the silver cup, 
in the sack's mouth of the youngest, in Benjamin's sack, and his corn money. And he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away and their messes, or sorry, their donkeys, their asses. I knew someone was going to laugh. And when they were gone out of the city and not yet far off, Joseph said unto his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you rewarded evil for good? Is not this the cup, it in which my Lord drinks, and whereby indeed he divines? He, you have done evil in so doing. And so he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words, and they said unto him, Wherefore saith my Lord these words? They're going, you're crazy, you're out of your mind. Why would you bring such an accusation against us? God forbid that your servant should do according to this thing. Behold, the money which we found in our sack's mouths, we brought again to you out of the land of Canaan. How then should we steal out of thy Lord's house silver or gold? Look, we, we got plenty of money. We got nothing to gain by stealing your cup. Why would we do that? With whomsoever of your servants it be found, both let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves." And he said, now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave and you all shall be blameless. In other words, we're going to find out who stole the cup and the one who stole the cup, he's going to be a slave in Egypt. So they speedily or quickly took down every man his sack to the ground and they opened every man his sack. And he searched and he began at the eldest and left at the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and laded every man his ass and returned to the city. Now they have a ride. We don't know how long, but they have a a span of time to repack their camels or their donkeys and now ride back to the city. And you can imagine the level of fumes that are rising in the minds of these older brothers thinking that Benjamin took this cup. That slime ball. What in the world is he doing here? Anger rising up. And Judah and his brethren came to Joseph's house, for he was yet there, and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said unto them, What deed is this that you have done? What ye not that such a man as I can certainly divine? In other words, don't you realize that a man in my power or position has some kind of discernment, spiritual insight, that I'm going to know things that happen around me? And Judah said, What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. We've got no excuse. We can't defend ourselves. And Joseph said, God forbid that I should do so, but the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. And as for you, get up in peace to your father. Test number three or two that Joseph gives to these guys. Not just will they leave and abandon Simeon, but now will they leave and abandon Benjamin in the same way they abandoned Joseph. And here is their opportunity to say, oh, We can be free, and we get rid of Benjamin? So sorry, Dad. Oh, well, I guess the other son of Rachel is just going to be gone. The temptation, the trap, the test is set. And now, Judah's remorse, verse 18, what Joseph was hoping for. 
It says, then Judah came near unto him. And he said, O my Lord, let thy servant, I pray thee, speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not thine anger burn against your servant, for you are even as Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said unto my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, a little one. And his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. And you said unto your servants, Bring him, the youngest, down unto me, that I may set my eyes upon him. And we said unto my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And you said unto your servants, Except your youngest brother come down with you, you shall see my face no more. And it came to pass, when we came up unto thy servant my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, Go again and buy us a little food. And we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother be with us, then we will go down for we may not see the man's face except our youngest brother be with us. And your servant, my father said unto us, you know that my wife bare me two sons. That is Rachel, the favored. And the one went out from me and I said, surely he is torn in pieces and I saw him not since. And if you take this, Benjamin, also from me, and mischief befall him, you shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Judah now speaks to Joseph after giving him the history. Now, therefore, when I came to thy servant, my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life, it shall come to pass when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of thy servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For thy servant, me, I became a guarantee, surety for the lad unto my father, saying, if I bring him not to thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. Now, therefore, I pray thee, let thy servant, let me, Judah, Let me abide instead of the lad, a bondman or a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. At this point, something amazing happens in Judah's heart where he lets go of something that he's been holding on to for God only knows how long. He lets go of his right of freedom. He lets go of his right of future. He lets go of his right of luxury and living and of prominence among his brothers. He lets go of everything in order that he might trade places with a guilty younger brother for the sake of pleasing his father and bringing freedom to the brother for the father's sake. Now, amazingly, this very action is the thing that's going to thrust Judah upward and put him as the prominent one among his brothers. It is because of this moment right here that we call Jesus Christ the lion of the tribe of Judah and not the lion of the tribe of Joseph. It is because of this thing right here when Judah lets go of something that he was trying to hold on to for himself that is the greatest moment of achievement and blessing in his life and for his future. Verse 34, he says, For how shall I go up to my father and the lad be not with me, lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come to my father? Then, 
chapter 45. Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he cried, cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brothers. They passed the test. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. This goes beyond a moving of the bowels. Now there's a weeping to the point where not only do the men in the room feel awkward because of it, but even those that have been put out of the room and all of those that are around Pharaoh's household hear the cry of Joseph in this moment as Joseph lets go of something that he's been carrying for 22 years. A pain that's deep. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I love these words, some of my favorites in the Bible. I am Joseph. Does my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. That's one of those biblical understatements. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me here. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years has the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall be neither earring nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now, it was not you that sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Haste ye, go, hurry, and go up to my father and say unto him, Thus says thy son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and tarry not. And you shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near unto me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. And there will I nourish you, for there are yet five years of famine, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. And behold, your eyes see in the eyes of my brother Benjamin that it is my mouth that speaks to you. And you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall haste and bring down my father here. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers, and he wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. And so we'll pause there. We won't read any further in our study tonight. But I want to talk to you uh, in the remainder of our time about an amazing thing that happens in the lives of every character in this story that brings them to the point of this climactic resolution and then leads them into the future that God planned for them, the future of God's blessing. Where we left Jacob and where Jacob is back in the land of Israel, he's sitting on what we can call the cesspool of what his life has become. His past, present, and future, and his uh, statement there and everything. And, and, and jo Jacob, back up in Canaan at this time, essentially is stuck. He's in that place where he's sitting on a pile of ruins, and he's got the one thing left that, that, that brings him any joy, and he's kind of holding on to this thing. 
And because he's holding on to this thing, he's stuck because he can't move forward in what God has until he lets go of this thing that he wants to hold on to. And I don't blame him for that. I would probably do the same thing, and I would probably hold out even longer than he did, uh, just seeing the trends and the way things were going and knowing who my sons were. But, but, but essentially, Jacob, in his position here, is stuck because he's holding on to the one thing that he needs to let go of in order for the ball to get rolling. In other words, Jacob is stuck because the way out of the predicament that he is in is to embrace the thing that he's seeking to avoid. He wants to avoid losing Benjamin, but the only way to get free is to let go of that preservation and to embrace the thing that he's trying to avoid. It's amazing to me how often bad things are what motivate surrender and initiate change. I was listening this week to uh, uh, an interview with a neurosurgeon whose name was David Levi. And uh, he was kind of telling the story of how he came to faith in Christ from a Jewish background. Um, and he was kind of like describing how God had led him into this field and what God was doing with him in it there. And as he shared his testimony, he said that his father, who was a, a full Orthodox Jew, had come to a place in his uh, journey or his walk where he had become kind of dissatisfied or disillusioned by the Jewish religion. It wasn't working for him, and he needed something. There was something in his life that wasn't being supplied. And so he fell upon a copy of the New Testament, and as he grabbed the New Testament, he decided that he would start with the book of Luke because the name Luke was closest to Levi. And he felt, if I'm going to relate anywhere, maybe it'll be here. And so he started reading the Gospel of Luke. Well, as he came to chapter 4, he came to the passage where Jesus speaks of himself and Jesus says that I have come to, uh, to bind up the brokenhearted. And, and when he read that, it, it struck him and he realized that that's what he needed, that his heart was broken and that he needed something or someone that could bind up the brokenness that was his heart and that he hadn't found it yet. And it was that realization of coming to that, that it was Jesus that could do it, that he gave his life to Jesus Christ, was converted to Christianity, and then he raised up his family, and then the future kind of unfolds with David Levi uh, becoming a, a Christian, you know, through the influence of his father and, and all the rest. But as I heard that, it kind of struck me, and I thought, okay, here's a guy who was in such great pain and things had become so troubling in his life that it brought him to the place where he was willing to let go of something that he had held on to because the level of pain motivated him to do it. I wrote down this line, that change happens when the weight of my need supersedes my desire or demand for a particular outcome. In other words, if he were to hold on, I'm a Jew. We don't believe in Jesus. And so I'm going to find the solution to my need in the context of what I want, what I can hold on to. Then he never would have found it. But essentially what happened is that his level of desperation reached the point where he didn't care what it costs in order for change to come. And so if that meant letting go of a tradition that would cost him greatly in terms of family reputation, if it was going to do for him the thing that he needed on the inside, then he was willing to do it. And oftentimes in our lives, in any life, 
Change begins when our level of desperation reaches a point where we're willing to let go of anything that we need to, no matter what the cost is, in order that we might receive the thing that we ultimately need. For David Levi, that meant his Jewish roots. For Jacob, that meant holding on to that one thing, Benjamin, that was left in his life. He needed to let go of this thing. And he came to the point where he says, if I am bereaved of my son, then I am bereaved of my son. And so often for you and I, the thing that prohibits change is that we're holding on to something. Maybe we're holding on to an outcome that we want in a particular situation. We want relief from something, but we don't want it to go a certain way. And so we hold on to the control. And so we stay stuck. We sit on the top of that cesspool of ruin waiting for something to change. And it isn't until we surrender and let go that change begins to come. Now, everyone in the story, not just Jacob, has something that needs to change. And everyone in the story has something that they're holding on to that they must let go of. And you and I are not excluded from the narrative. There are things in every one of our lives that God wants to set right. There are things in every one of our lives that, like Jacob, we're sitting on the top of a cesspool of ruin, whether it be from the past, the present, or our hope, or not lack thereof, of the future. And there's problems. Sometimes, like Joseph's brothers, there's guilt, there's remorse. There are things in our past that have gotten so tangled up, and they've twisted our journey so much that we're not where we're supposed to be, whether emotionally, or even locationally, or vocationally or wholesomenessly, whatever, that's not a word, you know. But it can happen to us that we're not where we're supposed to be, and God wants to set us right. And there's things that we need to let go of in order that we might begin to see that change happen. And so for Jacob, of course, we know that he was holding on to Benjamin, and he needed to let Benjamin go. The thing that he thought was sustaining his life was actually the thing that he needed to release in order to see the future come. It happens to us all the time kind of the same way, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes we hold on to people. Sometimes we hold on to someone. We hold on to a relationship in our life. And we think that that relationship is the thing that's ultimately going to bring me satisfaction. We see this all the time in married relationships, marriage relationships, or even just plain human relationships. This person is going to be the fulfillment of that thing that I need. And ultimately, that person can never be the fulfillment of the thing that you need. And it isn't until you let go of that ideal, that ideal that you have for a perfect marriage. Sometimes it's maybe a a, a situation or a circumstance, a career or something that you have, and you're holding on to that, thinking that this is the thing that's going to make me happy, but meanwhile, you're watching everything else around you erode away and fall apart. Maybe it's not even something that, maybe it's just a, a script that you have written for your own life. And you're holding on to that. And you're saying, this is the way I want my life to go. This is where I've always seen my future. This is where I've always wanted to to go and for things to be. And it's not working out that way. And so I'm going to hold on to it, though. I'm going to make this thing happen the best way that I can. And sometimes the answer is to let go. In fact, the answer always is to let go, to surrender that thing to God that you're holding on to. And Jacob does it. And you know what's amazing? Is that when Jacob lets go of the thing that he thought would ultimately bring him happiness, you know what he got back in return? He got Benjamin back. He got Joseph back. He got all ten of his other sons back 
on a different level than he ever had them before. Whereas for 22 years, there was this shallow lie that was being lived between them and this barrier of relationship between him and his sons because of what they did that they couldn't confess to him. And he knew something was amiss, but he could never quite put his finger on it. But on the other side of letting go of that thing that he thought he couldn't, he received everything back that he always wanted. And then some. I ask the question, when will we, as people, stop putting expectations on others or on circumstances or on a script, thinking that that's going to bring us happiness, thinking that they're the reason, those things, why we're not happy or where we're supposed to be? We were designed to be filled with God. And it's only God that can fill us. The brothers are holding on to something, too. The brothers are holding on to a prominence, a desire for prominence. It's why they sold Joseph. It's why they rejoiced when Reuben was disqualified. It's why Joseph kept Simeon, because he would have been the next in line. He knew that there was a jockeying among them. They wanted the favor of their father. They wanted prominence in the family. And they're holding on to that. They're holding on to the lie of what happened. With it, they're holding on to a great guilt. But the thing that they're holding on to, and the thing that they so greatly desire, is slowly eroding away the interior of what they are. And it was time that they need to let go, and they do it. When Joseph says, Benjamin is going to stay with me, and they have the opportunity to keep things going, they choose rather to let go of it, and Judah begins to confess the sin that they had in their past. He came clean and he admits that they valued the selfish prize of their own prominence over the people that were worth more, especially to their father. God wasn't finished with them and he wasn't going to let them go on in this thing. But I wonder what it was like for the brothers when they heard the words, I am Joseph. I mean, put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. I mean, all this time they never suspected that Joseph was still alive, much less the prime minister. And yet as they stood before him and he heard, they heard those words that says that they were troubled at his presence. Imagine in their minds that something came to life that had died a long time ago. There was a hope that was in them that the story isn't over yet. That something that we killed so long ago, maybe there's still some resurrection, there's some life, and something came alive. There was some hope that there could be some redemption, some resolution to this thing in their past. I think it was probably somewhat what it was like for Peter after he had betrayed the Lord. And he's carrying the guilt and the shame of hearing the rooster crow and having that sound echo in his ears continually, thinking that Jesus is now gone and that he failed and betrayed him. And I can't redeem the past. There's no hope of getting this back. And then to have those two women come that first resurrection morning and to say, behold, we went to the tomb and he's alive. And I imagine for Peter to hear those words that he's alive was the same sentiment that Joseph's brothers had when Joseph said, I am Joseph. Peter didn't see Jesus that day, but he would a few days later fishing up on the shores of Galilee. And Peter would realize it was Jesus on the shore It gave them a miraculous catch of fish. And again, Peter, he throws on his coat. He jumps in the water. He tries to walk on water again. It doesn't work this time. And he swims to the shore. And there he has a conversation with Jesus. And there's reconciliation and redemption. 
And I imagine that for Joseph's brothers at this point to realize that there is even the potential for this thing that went awry so long ago to be made right, that we might in some way redeem this whole thing. It birthed in them this level of hope that they probably hadn't felt or even thought that they could. The yoke of their guilt unlocked in that moment. And the potential for release and freedom came. And when they let go, it was when they let go of their guilt and their confession, they gave it. Their desire, Judah said, make me a slave. Take my freedom. Take my future. It was then that he got everything back. He let go of something else too, I believe, that day, Judah, and not just Judah, but the other brothers who were willing to give themselves for Benjamin's sake. I believe they also gave away a sense of inadequacy that they carried for a long time. Inadequacy ran in the family. You guys realize that? I mean, what was Jacob? He was not favored, right? Didn't he always feel inadequate? Esau was always the favored one. Jacob had this inadequacy thing going on. Not just the father, but the mother, Leah, who was Judah's mother, Reuben's mother, Simeon's mother, Levi's mother. She had an inadequacy thing. She never could measure up. Rachel. You guys remember the Brady Bunch? Marsha? It was Rachel. Rachel. It's all about Rachel. She's the pretty one. She's the talented one. She's the favored one. She's the one that gets all the attention. It's Rachel. Oh, Jacob wants Rachel. Jacob loves Rachel. Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. It was all about Rachel. And everything that drove Leah's life was always trying to measure up because she was never good enough. She was never pretty enough, never smart enough, and she had this inadequacy thing. Passed on to the 11, to the brothers. Oh, Joseph, he's got the looks, he's got the skills, he's got the talent, he's got the favor of our father, and somewhere in their heart, they knew they couldn't measure up to what he had, even if it was by birth. And the only solution is in their inadequacy that caused their jealousy, they sold their brother Joseph into Egypt. We'll get him out of our sight. We'll get him out of here. Because in order for us to have the favor that we want or the future that we want, we would have to have something that he has that we can never have. We're inadequate. And so therefore, the only chance we have is to get rid of him. But they came to a point where they realized they can never have something that they don't have and that they could never take away something that wasn't really theirs. They let it go. They let go of it. You know what's amazing about all this inadequacy? Do you know that Jacob, as inadequate as he felt, that he was the one that was chosen by God? Do you know that Leah, as inadequate as she felt, that she was the one that was chosen by God? It would be through Judah. And Jacob would say, bury me by Leah. Do you realize that Judah one who felt inadequate, that he was the one that would be chosen by God and he would hold a higher prominent place than even Joseph. They felt inadequate, but they weren't inadequate in the eyes of God. I don't know if anyone here can relate to that. Anyone here have a sense of inadequacy? That you don't measure up? That what you are isn't quite good enough? That if you had things a little different, a little different opportunity, if you were born in a different order or a different time or a different place, or if you didn't have certain things happen to you that happened to you, or if you did have things happen to you that didn't happen to you, that somehow that would put you in a better place than where you are right now. I know I can relate to that. But what these guys learned in it, and what I think we need to learn from it, is that you can't have anything that God doesn't give you, no matter how hard you try or wish or will or sabotage it for somebody else. 
And, listen, here's the better part. No one can take away from you the things that God has given you. You're not inadequate. He knows you just the way you are. He made you just the way you are. And you and I have a choice every day. We can either live in remorse over what we think we're not and attempt to obtain what we can't, or we can rejoice and discover what God has put in and we can live in that. Don't ever let anyone tell you that you're inadequate. Don't ever let anybody tell you that you're not good enough or that you need something that you don't have. You were made by God in the image of God and you were given something by God and he has a place of prominence for you just the same. Joseph's brothers had something they let go of. They let go of it. And their past was redeemed. Their future was set right. Joseph had something to let go of too. You know what it was? Bitterness, resentment, anger, vengeance. He also carried a lot of pain, isolation. I think that was the message that he was seeking to send to his brothers and sitting by himself. I don't fit in amongst the Egyptians, and I don't fit in amongst you. I've felt it my whole life that I have no place that I actually belong. And he was secretly seeking to convey that message to his brothers. It was something that he was carrying with him every day of his life. But you know what's amazing about Joseph in contrast to all the others? He had a very loose grasp on things. And Joseph let go of it. Somehow, some way, somewhere, Joseph let go of it. He didn't carry it. He let it go. He didn't say, when I see my brothers again someday. He didn't say, just wait until they do bow down. I kick them in the teeth, you know. He didn't do it. He wouldn't let it happen. He let go of the wrongs that were done to him. And you know what he got? You know what's amazing? It took 20 years, but first of all, he got the brothers that he always wanted. But second thing that Joseph got that no one else had is that he had insight into what God was doing in the whole entire situation. Did you hear what he said? God sent me here to preserve life. Wasn't you that did this to me. God allowed this to happen so that he could save many people alive as it is and prepare a place for you to come. He had perspective. He had vision. He could see. Why? Because he wasn't holding on to the vengeful, spiteful, resentful feelings about what had happened to him in his past. He immediately gave it upward, and in return, God was able to give him perspective as to what was going on, why, and how it would resolve. What a freedom. Do you know that that's the reward of letting go of the wicked things that people have done to you and I? We're going to close. The worship team can come. But do you know that Jesus let go of something too? Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus let go of his righteousness. That was something that was his rightfully so. He was God. And he lived a perfect life as a man. But do you know what he did? He took his cup, Jesus, in the garden. Remember that cup? The cup at the table that he gave to his disciples and the cup that was given to him there in the garden. He took his cup and he put it in the sack of the mouth of the youngest. He took his cup, his silver cup, his clean cup, his clean life, what he was, and he gave it away, just like Joseph did, or Joseph really, more like Jesus. Jesus, like Joseph, was separated from his father. He was rejected by his brothers. It says he came unto his own, but his own received him not. 
Jesus was falsely accused of things that he didn't commit, crimes he didn't commit. Jesus absorbed the guilt that wasn't his for the sake of relationship that could be built with those that were actually guilty. And he did all that in order that he might forgive, that he might save, that he might preserve, that he might bring near. Jesus let go of his righteousness so that you and I would know that we can let go. And I ask you, what are you holding on to tonight? What is it that tonight you're holding on to that's preventing change from happening in your life, that's keeping God from rolling the ball forward? Is it some expectation? Is it some outcome? Is it some idol? Is it some ideal? Is it something from your past? Is it a sense of inadequacy? What is it that you're holding on to tonight that's keeping you from your future? And I ask you the question, is that will you hear the call? Because here's the call. Joseph says in in the final portion of the passage, you know what he says to his brothers? He says, I want you guys to leave Canaan and I want you to come to Egypt. I want you to recognize that where you're living in this unchanged place, unchanged state, you're in a famine. And it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. So don't regard your stuff. Leave where you are. Come to Egypt and you'll eat from the fat of the land. You'll be near me. You'll be in my kingdom. You'll be in the place that I've prepared for you. And tonight Jesus extends that same invitation to you and I. And I ask you tonight, if you're honest with yourself, are you living in a famine place? Are you sitting on a pile of rubble? Can you hear the voice of the Savior saying to you, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest? Do you know they'll go back to Canaan? They're going to come to Egypt, but they're going to go back to Canaan. When they leave, it's going to be a famine, but when they go back, it's going to be the land of milk and honey. And what's the point? Here's the point. Is that when we let go and we give God... Whatever it is, however it is, however it means, when we let go and we give God, we always get back infinitely more than not only what we gave up, but what we could expect. And when he gives us back even the things that we gave up, he gives them back to us the right way. And it's always his will. It's always his way. Father, we thank you tonight for this. And as we consider it, Lord, as we think of uh, what you did and what you provided and Uh, And what you ask of us in order that you might do for us. Oh, Lord, we're overwhelmed in the sense of undeservedness. And I pray tonight as we consider, Lord, those things that we carry, those areas of our lives, Lord, where things just don't make sense and we don't know why. I pray that by your Spirit tonight you would reveal to us, Father, please, oh, Lord, where we lack, what we lack, what we're holding, and what you might do, Lord, if we would trust you fully. So please, Father, speak to us, help us, give us perspective, give us insight. We thank you for your word, for your truth. Be with your people, be with us, Lord. We're asking for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.